You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, church, we are in week five of our sermon series entitled Words of Life. We are we're developing a theology, if you will, of words. Right? A theology is a word just simply means the study of God, theosology, right? And so we're trying to ask the question, God, in light of who you are, in light of what you have done, in light of what you have made us as now your sons and daughters that don't belong to this world but belong to the kingdom of glory, how do we understand this gift that you have given to us of words, the gift that you have spoken to us, in the gift that you have now given us words to speak to others. And so one of the tenets that I want you to lean into in this sermon series is that to speak is something that we actively and intentionally learn to do. It's not just something that happens. Now, we've got five kiddos, and we haven't spent a ton of time intentionally helping them to learn to speak it feels like they oftentimes just do it on their own. But the truth is, and I've said this a couple times, we, we're going to learn, we're going to learn how to speak, we're going to learn who to follow, we're going to learn what to hope in. And so the question is, what are we learning to speak? How are we learning to speak? What are we learning to, who are we learning to follow? What are we learning to put our hope in? And so we want to be intentional in learning or maybe relearning to speak. As I was kind of praying through this sermon series and preparing for it, one of the stories that kind of just was constantly playing in my mind was one of our kiddos, when they entered into school, I think it was maybe in first grade, they they went through this program called LIPS. And this program that's kind of done throughout the elementary schools in the area helps kids to better formulate the words that they're trying to speak, to in some ways connect their brains to their mouth, to their vocal cords. And so uh, this, uh, this little one of ours would come home, and one of the things that they would learn was not just speaking, but they would learn kind of hand or arm motions when they were trying to make or to sound out a certain vowel sound or combination of letters. And so for a long period of time throughout this entire school year, right, there were like hand movements. You would have thought my, my child was like a third base coach, right, because it felt like every time they were speaking, they were like making symbols, and I, I didn't know if they were like landing a plane or speaking or sending someone home, but it was helping them. We could see it actively helping them to communicate more clearly the words that they have been given. And in the same way, we want to, as we walk through this sermon series, give you all, and I want to be reminded myself and be given tools that will help us to see Jesus better, help us to speak to Jesus better, and help to speak to the world around us about Jesus better. So we began this sermon series the first two weeks, and I'm going to recap this every week because I want it ingrained with declaring that there are two voices that we are constantly hearing. 
One is the voice of truth and the voice of life, the voice of our creator, God, and the other is the voice of our enemy. The voice that would constantly try and convince us that we don't need the voice of our creator, God. That his ways are less than good and that we can do this on our own. And we said we need to know that we know that we know the words of our heavenly father. And we need to be able to hear the voice of our enemy and reject it as a lie that it actually is. And then we turned after talking about those two voices that are prominent in our lives. And we started asking the question, who are we to speak to? In week one, Pastor Adam stood up here and declared that we have been left on this earth as Christ followers, primarily with one mission, which is to go and to preach the gospel to the entire world. That when we speak to others, the most important thing that we can tell them about is Jesus. And then we transitioned last week from speaking to others to speaking to ourselves. And we said that nobody else has as much influence on our life as we do because no one else speaks to us as much as we speak to ourselves. And so just like everybody else needs to hear the gospel, we need to be preaching to ourselves day in and day out the truth of the gospel. We pulled that out of Mark 1.11 where the Father says to Jesus, and because of Jesus, the Father now says to us, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Today, we are learning to speak to someone else, and quite honestly, we are learning to speak to the most important person. Today, we're looking at what it looks like to speak to our Father, our Father in heaven. I want to answer two broad questions today as we look at speaking to God. One, why do we speak to Him? And then two, what does it look like or what is it meant to look like when we speak to him? And let me just diffuse this really early on. If you do a survey just of this church and we've had surveys done of of our country and different denominations and you ask them either the question of what would they love to see really enhanced in their relationship with Jesus, their walk as Christ followers, And what do they struggle most with as Christ followers? The answer is almost unanimously the same. And it's prayer. It's the thing that we somehow know we desperately need and want. And it's also the thing that we feel like we so desperately struggle to get our arms around. And so this is a space this morning where I I hope and I'm pleading with the Lord that we can enter into authentically and ask Him, God, will you help us speak to you? Because otherwise, quite honestly, and I'm going to confess this up front, it's the blind leading the blind. If your hope is that I am going to help you learn to speak to our Heavenly Father. Because even as I preach this message, I am pleading with the Lord for me. God, help me fall in love with you again and give me grace that I might speak to you all the days of my life. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, these concluding verses. And he answers for us this first question that I want to look at, which is, why? Why do we pray? Why ought we pray? Now this might seem like, especially if you've grown up in the church, either an odd question or perhaps a blasphemous question. Right? The, the, The question why seems like, you know what? 
I know what my parents always told me when I asked why. Right? What, what do I always say to my kids out of frustration when they come and question me? Why? Because I said so. That's why. And if I'm being honest, most of us live our Christian lives with a sense that the answer to why that God gives us is because I said so. But the truth is that the question why is critically important for us. You know, we've got five kiddos and, and at various times in our lives as mother and father, we've had different kiddos that just seem to just constantly conflict, right? And so for the last 13 years, it feels like, or maybe, maybe 10, because for two years, three years, we only had one kid, and they didn't conflict with other kids, at least in our household. We've been breaking up fights for what seems like a decade, right? We're constantly going to a kid where we hear, mom, dad, so-and-so hit me, and so we'll, we'll come up and we'll ask the question of the, per, the offending party, why did you do that? You guys want to take a guess of what answers we typically get back? Yeah, that one, that one happens a lot. Our kids have now learned not to answer with that one. Because them saying I don't know means I get to make an assumption of why it happened. And my assumption is never as good as their story. They'll say something like, uh, um, because they were being really mean to me, or because they wouldn't share that toy, or, or my favorite, because they hit me first. Now, now, here's the problem with their answer to why, beyond the fact that sometimes it's just not true. But the biggest issue is they're not actually answering my question. They're not answering why did you hit your brother or your sister. They might be trying to justify their actions, they might be giving me information about what led up to the offense. They might be trying to tell me about events that occurred that led them to emotions that bubbled over in the offense, but they're not answering why. Because why is about purpose. Why is about intention. Why is about connecting the dots between our needs and desires and an outcome. Why tells us what we're after, what we're trying to achieve, what we're hoping to get. And my kids in conflict are trying to achieve something. Maybe they're trying to make somebody else feel the hurt that they're already feeling. Maybe they're trying to get something that they feel like they can't get their arms around. And church, what I want you to hear this morning is we have whys when it comes to walking with Jesus and the things He calls us into, including prayer. Right? Like, ask yourself the question, how often do you ask the whys about your walk with Jesus? And the reason I want you to is because when we live in a because I said so type of Christianity, we fail to grasp a hold of the fullness and the beauty of who our God is and what He is calling us into. The whys are critically important. They're important for longevity, quite honestly. Because how long do we keep up with the because I said so's of our lives? Not long. It's important for perseverance. It's important for, pers for authenticity. But the whys are also wonderfully beautiful and good and they cause us not just to do things because we ought 
but to do things because we get to. And Paul gives us three whys of prayer, and I'm going to give them to you up front. One, why do we pray? Because He is near us. Two, He sees us. And three, because we need to. He's near us, He sees us, and we need Him. Start with the first one, He is with us. Paul makes several commands here as he's ending his letter to the church in Philippi in chapter 4. Right? He, he begins in verse 4 and he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Then he says at the beginning of verse 5, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Then further on into verse 6, he says, Do not be anxious about anything. And then he tells us, Let all of your requests be made known to the Lord. And all of these commands hinge around one truth that Paul tells us. All of these hinge on the fact that the Lord is at hand. Literally, in the, the Greek, it, it says the Lord is right here. Like he's almost grafted in. He is immediately, intimately beside us and with us. And Paul is saying, the fact that God is here changes everything. It's the reason for all of these commands. It's the reason for all of this admonition. It's the reason for why we do what we do. The, the desire to be near and with God is a universal desire. And that's for all of us who know Christ Jesus, and quite honestly, and Paul says this in his letters to Roman, it's a universal desire for even those that don't know God. It's what our neighbors who don't know Jesus are desperately looking for as they are looking for contentment and hope and comfort and peace and rest. What they're looking for is the presence of God with them. I came across this quote from a, an atheist author named Julian Barnes. This author was working through their fear of death and trying to get their arms around it. And in the midst of them trying to work through their fear of death, they made this statement. I don't believe in God, but I miss him dearly. Like, Do you hear the tension there? I don't believe in him, but man, I wish I did. I miss him, and I've never even known him that I can think of. It's a universal condition that we were made to be with God. It began in the Garden of Eden as God created us, male and female, in his presence to live with him. And from the moment that we were expelled from the Garden of Eden, you and I and every other human being on this earth has desperately needed primarily this, for the Lord God to be at hand. And Paul says that he's here, that he's with us that we are no longer estranged from him, that there is no longer a distance. This is why Jesus came. This is the glory and joy of the incarnation that God came for us. 
So what is it about this nearness? What is it about the fact that God is with us, that causes us, that spurs us on to pray, to speak to Him? Well, one, the fact that He's near us and that He's with us, it proves His faithfulness to us. Right? It, it shows us that He has not left us nor forsaken us. It shows us that when we need Him, He's right here. Right? One of the most beautiful passages, in my opinion, in all of Scripture comes in the book of Lamentations, chapter 3. My guess is, unless you've read through the entire Bible, you've not read the entirety of Lamentations. And here's why, because it's hard to get through. Right? In Lamentations chapter 3, just a few verses before the verses that I love, the author, likely Jeremiah, a prophet who was going through an immense suffering, says something like this, God, you have made my teeth to grind on gravel. Right? Nobody wakes up and like grabs their coffee cup with Lamentations 3, God, you've made my teeth grind on gravel. And like, throw this on Instagram for everybody to see. Right? It's a hard book, and it's a hard book because Jeremiah is dealing with hard suffering and the brokenness of this world and trying to figure out, God, what are you doing and where are you? And the culmination of the book comes in verses 20 and 21 and 22 of Lamentations 3 where he says, even in the midst of this, of all this suffering, of all this pain, this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God. The Lord is my portion, so my soul will hope in Him. He is near us, and His nearness proves to us that He is faithful. And it also displays for us His lavish Love, like get this, Philippians 2 says that Jesus poured himself out in order to come from heaven to earth, taking on feeble, frail, inadequate flesh, lowering himself to the point of a servant, obeying the will of the Father to the point of death on a cross. The journey down for him was staggering. And he made that journey down in order to be with us. He is with us in the midst of suffering and struggle and hardship, sorrow and confusion. God is with us. And then finally, here's, here's why nearness for God leads us to prayer. Because it proves to us that our conversation is intimate and close. And that it's not theoretical and distant. Like we, we're not trying to cover some cosmic distance with our prayer. We're not trying to thread the eye of a needle with the perfect prayer. We're not trying to shout over the thousands of other voices that would vie for the Lord's attention. Because He's here. And so in the most quiet of whispers, in the most subtles of sighs and groans, He's with us and He hears us. He's near to us. But He's not just physically near to us. He also 
knows us. Paul relates after proclaiming to us that the Lord is at hand. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So here's here's what I love about this. What Paul is telling us is, hey, God knows you're anxious. He's not just physically with you, but he is emotionally, spiritually near to you. He sees your feebleness. Paul Miller, an author I love, tells a story about a, a specifically difficult season in his life. And he, he took a sabbatical from his work and, and he would bike every day to this kind of little hermitage that was a couple miles away and he would just sit and he would just read the Gospels over and over and over again. And he said, all I wanted to do was just fix my eyes on Jesus. And he says, I did so, there was something that I noticed. And it was how many times again and again the Gospel writers, all four of them, said that Jesus saw people. And it might seem like a small thing, but it was as if they had to say the God of the universe fixed his eyes on them, on me, on you. There's this story in Luke chapter 7 of of this funeral procession. This woman who was a widow and only had one son had lost her son. And Jesus and this big kind of gathering of people that were following him were entering into the city at the same time as this funeral procession was making its way into the gate of the city. And there kind of be this confluence of this mass of people. And there was a hubbub all around and kind of the crowd was, was loud and there were a ton of people there. But in that moment, it says that Jesus sees someone. And here's what I love. He doesn't see the crowd He doesn't see the spectacle. He doesn't see the casket being carried. You know who he sees? He sees the woman that just lost her son. In that moment, Jesus tunes himself into her in order to say, not only am I here physically near you, but I see what you're going through Like, hear me say this, God is powerful and perfect and holy and righteous. And that's true and it's also good, but can I tell you something? I think sometimes we have such an over-realized version of that aspect of God that that aspect of God keeps us from entering authentically into prayer with Him. And it does so because it feels like we think He can't possibly relate to us. He can't possibly really know what's going on. Except for the psalmist says that he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Hebrews chapter 4 says that Jesus, God in human flesh, was tempted in in every way that we were. That's how great of a high priest we have. That's how great of a God that we have. That he is perfect and holy and righteous. And he's also near And he also knows us and sees us. God's not caught off guard by your anxiety. 
He's not caught off guard by your depression. He's not caught off guard by your feebleness. He's not caught off guard by your lack of faith. He's not caught off guard by your struggles and your sins and your addictions. He's near to you and He knows you. And then finally, why do we pray? We pray because we need Him. Right? The truth is that God doesn't just know how we are doing or know where we are at like we do. He knows us better than we do. He knows us far more intimately than we know ourselves. And He is powerful to do something about it when we're not. Right? In saying, Paul saying that we are anxious, He's also telling us that we need a solution, and that solution is our Heavenly Father. Uh, David Pallison is a, a counselor and an author that, that recently passed away, and he's kind of one of Rachel and I's favorite authors. And At multiple times in, in different books and, and podcasts that we've heard, he said something that's always stuck with me as he's talking about people that struggle with anxiety or depression or or other mental disorders, and what he said is, most of those people are living a far more authentic and logical life than we are. That if there is not a God in the universe, that if there is not a heavenly Father that cares for us, anxiety, depression, fear, doubt, only makes sense. But if there is a God in the universe, and if there is a God who cares for us as a heavenly Father, then we have been created to go to Him again and again and again because we need Him again and again and again. Whenever I I preach I feel like as I listen back to myself sometimes, I, I constantly am making really long lists about God. So I'll get real fired up about a point and how desperately you need Him, and I'll just go into these lists where I'm like, don't you know that He's your provision and peace and rest and comfort and pleasure and comfort and support and wisdom and correction and leading and forgiveness and adoption, and I'll just go through this big list. And you know what I'm trying to do? Like in my really small brain, I'm like, if I can list out enough things, eventually you'll go, you know what? I think I need him. Right? Like, because we do, we desperately do, and not in a few areas of our life that we just haven't gotten our arms around yet, but in everything. Everything we need him. John Calvin says that there are two knowledges that we must have in order to walk and be with Jesus. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. And we can spend a lot of times acknowledging the truth of who God is and we're really bad at knowing ourselves. We're really bad at knowing ourselves and not knowing ourselves and our neediness is oftentimes the primary roadblock to prayer. Like, let's just be honest. Why don't you pray? 
Why don't I pray? Because I don't think I need it. Kathy Keller and Tim Keller wrote a book on prayer, and in the beginning of it, Tim Keller tells the story of a conversation he had with his wife. She had been kind of pleading with him for a while to make prayer together as a regular routine in their lives. And, and they had kind of fits and starts, and, and they would do it for a little while, and they'd fall out of it, and they'd do it for a little while, and they'd fall out of it. And finally, he got a phone call from her, and she said, enough is enough. We talk all the time about how desperately we need God. But let me tell you something. If I had a terminal illness and there was a pill that would keep me alive as long as I took it every day, I'd take it every day without fail. And if prayer is something that I inherently need because I am a needy creature, if I actually believed it, I would engage it every day all the time, without fail. Why don't we pray? Because we don't think we need it. And when we see that we need it, and in our need know that He is near us and He knows us, we will pray. So if that's the why of prayer, then what does prayer actually look like? Paul goes on. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. What does actually praying look like? What does actually speaking to God look like? Well, one, it means that we speak to Him constantly. Right, Paul makes a really, really, really big request. Do not be anxious about anything. Right? It's like, come on, Paul. Like, you've been shipwrecked. You've been shipwrecked. You've been floating around at sea, and then you got to an island and got up and started preaching, and then you were bit by a snake. Anything? There's got to be a couple of things. Like, I could deal with the shipwreck. I could deal with drowning at sea. I don't want to be bit by a snake. That's creepy. That's the devil. Right? Like, there are some things, Paul. Or even if it's not like, okay, there are some things. It's, I get it, Paul. I'm trying, but it's constant. I'm always anxious. Never, nothing be anxious about. But let me tell you something. What, that's a strong statement, but there's a stronger statement that he makes afterwards. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving make your request be made known to God everything in every circumstance in every situation in first Thessalonians he says in chapter 5 pray without ceasing always constantly we are meant to be in prayer now that probably sounds like a daunting task. The, the word prayer, when you break it down into the Greek, is made up of, of two kind of sub-words. The, the first part of the word means to express your desires and your thoughts. That's something we do all the time. We always have desires. We always have thoughts. We're either expressing them to ourselves or to the world around us. That's natural to us. But the second part of the Greek word means toward 
God. Prayer is literally taking what we are already doing and orienting our face towards the Father. Right? It's, it, it's not that we need to lock ourselves in the prayer closet at all times. What Paul is saying is, take who you already are as people with desires and needs and thoughts and incline them towards God. Or maybe, let me put it more simply, loop Him in because He's already with you. So live like it's true that He's always with you. Include Him into the conversation. Like, ask yourself this question. Does your life make sense in how you live it if the God of the universe that can grant every need and desire is physically, emotionally, and spiritually right here? I know it doesn't for me. Like, does your decision-making make sense if the God of all wisdom is always with you and willing to grant to you His wisdom? Would you ever utter the words again to someone else, I don't know? If you haven't already said to God, God, I don't know. But you do. Most of us relegate our prayers into just formal situations. Like we think of prayer as what we do after the sermon, before meals, and maybe during a quiet time in the morning. And listen, those are important times. Right? Every relationship needs dedicated one-on-one space where it's just you and the other person. But a marriage would be a pretty poor marriage if I said to my wife, hey, date time is Monday mornings. And we get done with it and I say to her, hey, talk to you next Monday. I'm like, what? That's not relationship. That's not intimacy. That's not knowing each other and living with one another. Your prayer life ought to have times of dedicated prayer and it ought to have a whole lot of times that sound like, oh God, help God, Jesus, please. I don't know, please, I please, I if you don't have stuttering, short, abbreviated, minute, groaning types of prayer in your life, let me tell you something, church, you are missing out on what we like to call relationship. What is prayer meant to look like? One, it's meant to be constant, and two, it's meant to be with thankfulness. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This is like a really odd sentence as we first read it. Paul Paul says like, ask him. Ask God for what you need. We're like, yeah, yeah. Ask God with thankfulness. And you're like, wait a minute. Thankfulness is what I give to God after he answers my prayer, right? How do I be thankful in the request. And Paul is telling us, be thankful, I think, for two things. One, be thankful that you can make the request. Right? Jesus, with his blood, bought your ability to go into the throne of grace before your heavenly Father and say, God, I want. God, I need. Please help. But then I also think, and maybe even more, 
he's trying to tell us that we should be thankful for the response that's coming. And you might say, well, how how do I know what that response is going to be? He might say yes, and he might say no, and the answer is, yeah, he might. But Paul is cluing us into a truth about who God is and what we ought to expect from him. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 32, and he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how much more will he not also with him give us all things? Paul is saying thankfulness is is not primarily words you speak it's not an attitude that you have it's a posture because you know who God is and what he's already done this word thanksgiving is is eucharisteus I feel like we're doing a lot of Greek but that's okay It, it literally means good grace Paul is saying, and he's calling us to see God's good grace that has already come and expect more good grace because that's all he gives us in Jesus. It may be a yes and it may be a no, but it will definitely be his goodness and grace. We are called into thanksgiving to posture ourselves in preparation to receive good grace. You know what else we use the word Eucharist for? Communion. The Lord's Supper. Good grace. When we take it, we are reminding ourselves of the Lord's good grace and saying to Him, I need more. And in prayer, we go to the Lord and thanksgiving is saying, you have already been so good, please give me more. And I can tell you the answer to that prayer is always yes. Prayer is constant. Prayer is with thanksgiving. And prayer is with authenticity. Paul ends by saying, make your requests known to God. Literally, requests, cravings, desires, wishes. Paul's saying, hey, be honest with him. Tell him what you actually want, what you actually need. Right? Christianity for so much is such a strong religion of oughts. I ought to be better than I am. I ought to do these things. I ought to relate to people this way. I ought to relate to God this way. But the truth is, that Jesus fulfilled all the oughts, so now we live in the is. And He is good, and we are jacked up, and so we go to Him as we actually are. Otherwise, a theoretical version of you is going to be talking to a hypothetical God. And that's not what prayer is. Prayer is the real God of the universe that really is here talking to the real you. Prayer is childlike by definition. We confess that we are needy, 
and we are sons and daughters speaking to a father. And children don't dress up when they go into the presence of their father. Children don't equivocate to the father their needs, and they don't hesitate to ask again and again and again. And this one I know by experience. They just don't. How many times, if you look at your prayer life, do you sound like a needy, repetitive, unput-together child? It may just be that that's why your prayer life feels like it's lacking. I, I have to just confess to you a pet peeve. And, and let me do this graciously. Oftentimes I'll be praying with someone for healing or for a real desire that they have. And before they can even get the desire out of their mouth, they'll say, God, if it's your will, heal this person of cancer. And listen, I love the intention of us submitting our will to the fathers. That is good. But we come to him first with the need and desires that we have. Right? Somebody's going to say, well, but Jesus in the garden, right? He, he said, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours. Let me tell you something. Jesus already knew it wasn't the will of the Father, and he still asked for it. Right? Like, you go to him, and you don't say, if it's your will, will you heal him? You say, God, I don't always know what's good. You do, but I can tell you what I want, and it's healing. I need, I want grace, healing, mercy, joy, fix my marriage, help my kids, strip me of pride and anger and frustration that's within me. We come to him authentically. Because he didn't save a version of us, he saved us. Speaking to God is something we do constantly in all of our life in the posture of thanksgiving, and we also do it authentically. Constantly, with thanksgiving, authentically. And then Paul ends. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That peace that he speaks of in the Hebrew is shalom. And it doesn't just mean a ceasing of hostilities. It means a wholeness. It's what existed in the garden before sin entered in. It's a deep exhale where you look and see all is as it ought to be or what God spoke over creation. This is very good. And Paul says that in prayer, when we go to Him, when we are with Him, when we speak to Him, it leads us into the experience of peace and shalom. If you feel like you are living as a child of God, but living also as an orphan, if you feel like, yeah, I know I, believe, I belong to the kingdom of God, but my days are spent in the kingdom of man, you want to know how we bring those two things together, and Paul tells us. It's through prayer. It's through speaking to the God who was and is and is to come. Church, we have an amazing God, and He has come for us.
He has saved us and He has reconciled us to Him. And so we go and we speak that world to, that truth to the world and we speak that truth to ourselves and because of that truth we go to our Heavenly Father and we speak to Him again and again and again. Pray with me.